you you might remember uh, that David had been a warrior king. He had defeated all of Israel's enemies. He had neutralized the Philistines, and he had first been ruling from uh, Hebron, which is south of Jerusalem, right on the edge of the Negev Desert, then conquered the city of Jerusalem from the Jebusites, and then declared Jerusalem to be the capital of his kingdom. Now, I'm saying all that because that gives a little more meaning and background to what is really going on in this psalm. So David is about to be coronated, crowned, anointed, all of those terms would apply, as the king of a united Israel. All 12 tribes are united. All 12 tribes are united under one ruler, and that ruler is David, and David is now ruling from Jerusalem. And that, that's of extraordinary importance because this is the first time, although that had occurred under Saul, David's predecessor, Saul was not a good king. Um, Saul had lots of issues. And as you might remember, basically he lost the kingdom. God took the kingdom from him. And it says the spirit left Saul in 1 Samuel 15, and the spirit came upon David. David was anointed as king. Again, I'm trying to say all that because that gives the historic background to this. And David looks at his world as he's about to be crowned king. And we talked about this the last time we were together. He asked two questions in verse 1. He uh, uh, summarizes the context in verse 2. And then in verse 3, the kings and the rulers who are plotting this conspiracy against God speak. Let us burst their bonds apart. Let us cast away their cords from us. The point of that is they don't want to live under God's rule, God's sovereignty. And so you have this almost ridiculous image of Yahweh, verse 2, and his anointed, his Messiah, and the people of the world are saying, we don't want to live under their authority. We don't want to live under them. We want to be free of their constraints. Now, I say all that. Because when I look at a verse like that, that very much fits the 21st century. People do not want to live under God's authority. They don't want to live according to his moral law. They don't want to live according to his standards. And so there's that spirit of rebellion as it was in David's time 3,000 years ago. So it is today. So verse 4 through 6, and that's kind of where we left off last time. How does God respond to this? In, in your notes, I have the response to the rebellion. How does, how does he respond? It's really quite, quite telling. First of all, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. The, the language there is it's well translated by the ESV translation, but the language there is God sitting in heaven on his throne, the sovereign Lord of the universe, laughing. And you probably would ask yourself, well, what's he laughing at? Is he laughing at the results of this rebellion against God? Or is he laughing at the stupidity and utter ridiculous nature of humans shaking their hands at him and saying, we don't want to live according to your rules. We don't want to live according to your standards, according to your virtues and values. And so it's that larger, big macro picture that that still applies too much of today. The human race does not want to live under God's authority. And his response is one of derision, one of, of laughing, not at their sin and the, the horrors of consequences of their sins, but of puny little created human beings shaking their fist at God and, and refusing, refusing to live under his authority, refusing to live under his rule. And that is all done in the name of verse 3, we want to be free. Verse 5 is a, a problematic verse in one sense, and Jim Beck even asked a question about that, and I wrote that down, that's why I remember that. Then, verse 5, then he, and that's referring to God, will speak to them in his wrath, terrify them in his fury. Now, let me stop there before we look at verse 6. This is a declaration from God. This is a declaration from the sovereign Lord of the universe, a declaration from that sovereign Lord of angry condemnation, of angry condemnation for their silliness, 
and, and the absurd nature of them shaking their fists at him. And the response is terror on their part, terror and fear on their part of God angry with them, of God holding them in derision, of God condemning them. These, when it says he speaks, that's a word of judgment. That's a word of condemnation. God is not passive in his response to this. And his response then out of his words of judgment, speaks to them in his wrath, is terrorizing them in his fury. I mean, this, these are words of wrath. These are not, these are not words of a passive, uh, neutral God. These are, these are the words of a God who is righteous, who is perfect, who is holy, responding to his creatures rebelling against him. Now, when my initial, when I studied this many years ago, my initial reaction was, okay, what's he going to do now? Wipe them out? Annihilate them? Verse 6 is the content of his declaration, his fury, his anger. He's going to establish another king. And that king will be the agent of his condemnation, will be the agent of his judgment. Now, if you look at the verse, as for verse 6 now, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So God's rule is being challenged. God's sovereignty is being challenged. God's authority is being challenged. So what's his response? It's anger. It's divine, perfect, holy, righteous anger. It's not a temper tantrum of the deity. This is righteous anger. But his response is, I'm going to give you an alternative. I'm going to give you an alternative to the kings and rulers of verse 2 who are plotting this rebellion. My king is going to sit in Jerusalem. That's Zion. It's another Old Testament name for, for Jerusalem, his holy hill. So you, you have this significant contrast that is being set up in Psalm 2, and it's really quite remarkable. You have one these kings, verse 2, these rulers plotting a rebellion against God. And then the other, you have the Messiah, the king, whom God has established in Jerusalem, and he is going to deal with this rebellion. And that becomes, for you and me, that becomes, oh, I know how he's going to deal with that. In the Old Testament, particularly at the time of David, that clarity wasn't available to them, but you and I do. You and I know. Now, if I were in the, in the room with you, I would ask you to interact with me on that. But think with me about this for just a moment. How does God respond to the rebellion through his king? He responds to his, the rebellion in two phases. Phase one, he sends his king to earth, to Jerusalem, to offer them salvation. To offer them salvation through his death, burial, and resurrection. To offer salvation through him, the king, taking the penalty, the judgment, that he speaks of in verse 5, as a substitute. And then phase two is when he returns, sets up his kingdom, vanquishes his enemies, deals with Satan, deals with evil, and crushes the rebellion. The first time Jesus comes, what we now call his first advent, he deals with the rebellion. This is incredible. He deals with the rebellion by paying the price of the rebellion, by dying on a cross, which we're going to celebrate here in a couple of weeks, by being resurrected in three days, conquering death, and offering to these rebels salvation. So you have this remarkable demonstration of God's grace in the midst of rebellion, of God's love in the midst of rejection, of God's mercy to people who deserve to be nothing more than annihilated and wiped off the planet. But that's not how God deals with the rebellion. Now, again, I'm, I'm fleshing that out in verse 6, because you and I on this side of the cross know where this story's headed. 
we, we know how this is going to work itself out. And so it's, to me, it's just, it's, it's a phenomenal illustration of the immense grace of God. It's just so hard to understand at times. The incredible love of God, which is equally as hard to understand at times, in the face of a rebellion against him. And then one more comment, and then I'll see if you have any questions. This also is in the context, particularly the words of verse 2 and 3, in the context of a larger rebellion. And that is the rebellion, of course, that's led by Satan. And that we see in verse uh, chapter 3, excuse me, of Genesis and throughout the entire rest of the Bible. Satan is challenging God's right to rule. If there's one fundamental question that characterizes all of human history, it is the question, who has the right to rule? And the answer, the alternative, is it God or is it Satan who's challenging that rule? And when when Genesis 3 opens, the question in Genesis 3 as it begins is, will the human race, will the image bearers of God that he's created join Satan in the rebellion or will they remain loyal to God? Well, you all know the answer to that question. So if, if I can just add that additional theological uh, context to this, this also is how God, by this, I mean verse 6, the coming of his son, is also how he's dealing with the larger cosmic rebellion of Satan. God is going to defeat Satan through the cross. And through the cross then, he will be able to give an alternative to these rebels who have joined Satan's rebellion and ultimately the, and, uh, spell the demise of Satan at his second coming, which is beyond this, this particular psalm and, and this class at this point. So anyway, this is rich stuff. This is deep stuff. This is deeply profound stuff. So I'm about ready to give you a big assignment to write, but... <laughs> I, I, I guess I won't do that. Uh, Glenn, can I ask if there are any questions? If anybody has a question, let me know. Absolutely. Just unmute and um, ask, ask away. Yeah. Everybody with me? So, Dr. Eckman, this is Jim back again. I want to come back to the question we left with the last time. Yeah. Which is verse 5. And the... Uh, they're terrified with version I'm reading, it terrifies them in his wrath. As I look around at a world that's in rebellion, I don't see a lot of terror. I see arrogance and I see um, bold rebellion, but I don't see people quaking in terror for um, their stand. Well, I, I, I certainly don't disagree with that at all. Jim, the... Um the, the, the essence of verse 5 is future tense. In other words, God, God's wrath, God's fury is future. And this, is, this is not going to mean anything to you at all. But in Hebrew, this is what we call proleptic future. I know that doesn't mean anything. But what it means is what, what the author is doing, what David is doing is he's saying, God is going to respond to this rebellion in his own time, in his own way, in his own method, and his wrath and his fury will be evident when he judges. Now, for you and me, at this point, even in 2020, we haven't seen this final judgment. We haven't seen this final settling of the score, so to speak, but it's coming. So you could almost translate this in verse 5, when God decides to do this, when God decides to give this final declaration of wrath and judgment, it will be terrifying. So in my notes, I wrote, see Revelation 6 through 18, because there is God pouring out his wrath, pouring out his judgment on planet earth during what? Uh, Jesus actually called Matthew 24 the Great Tribulation. And so it's, it's referring to that. And how's God going to resolve all this? Through his son, through the king. 
and that's why I, you know, I talked briefly about the two phases, which are in it. Jim, does that, uh, I don't know where you are here, but does that help get at your an the answer to your question? Uh, yes, it does. So the uh, scoffing and rebuking are sort of present tense, but the the uh, the wrath is future, or is it? That's it's a proleptic future. It is, it is. What that means is you're saying something that even though it has not yet occurred, it is so certain to occur you can speak of it in the present tense. Okay, Does that make sense. <laughs> yes, thank you. So I mean, it's 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 a it's a profound it's a profound commitment to the sovereignty of God, but also to His righteous indignation. He's not going to let this go um, unchecked. He is going to deal with it. And the amazing demonstration of His grace is how He deals with it in stage one with His Son. That's a great question. Okay, anything else? All right, let's go to verse seven through eight. And in your in your outline, or or, or if you're not using that, uh, it, the title of that segment is the king's uh, the king's decree. In verse seven, verse eight, and verse nine, the king of verse six speaks. Now, because this is a messianic psalm, I'm going to I'm going to suggest to you that it's Jesus. David is speaking because David is about to be coronated as king, and he's to receive his 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 inheritance, so to speak, to rule over Israel in 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 about a thousand BC, which is when he became king. But because this is messianic, indeed, this is exactly how Peter uses it in one of his sermons in Acts. This is referring to Jesus. So let's let's talk about it from that vantage point. This is Jesus speaking. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now that king speaks. Verse 7, he says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord, Yahweh, said to me, you are my son. Today, I have begotten you. Now that language, today, I have begotten you, is the coronation formula that was used in ancient Israel when a king was crowned, because it is a theocracy. God is the ruler of ancient Israel. The king is to serve God. Now, granted, most of the kings in, in ancient Israel's history didn't do that very well, but that's how God looked at it. But this is Jesus speaking. Yahweh says to me, you are my son. So here we have a wonderful illustration of the Trinity, one essence of three persons who differ relationally and functionally. Here's the Father speaking to the Son. This is exactly the same language that is in Psalm 110, verses 1 and 2. Now, what is going on here? This is the language. This is very, very important point. This is the language of the Davidic covenant. This is the language of 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, 15, and 16. This is the language of God making a promise to King David. And that promise is summarized in verse 16 of 2 Samuel 7, verse, chapter 7, verse 14. God calls the king his son. He calls David his son. But then he says, I'm going to make you a promise, David. Your throne is going to be an eternal throne. Your kingdom is going to be an eternal kingdom. And your dynasty is going to be an eternal dynasty. That is a profound promise. Because you leave the Old Testament, there is no Davidic king. They're under the rule of Persia and then Greece. There is no Davidic king ruling in Jerusalem. There's hardly a dynasty. So we're waiting. Who's going to fulfill that? In the very first words of the New Testament, Matthew 1.1, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham. And so he's in the line of David, that is Jesus, is in that line of David, and that genealogy proves this. So when, when, when David writes this, Yahweh said to me, you are my son, he is referring to 2 Samuel 7.14 and the promises of 2 Samuel 7.16. 
And he uses that coronation formula, today I have begotten you. Now that language, begotten you, that should resonate with you. That should cause you to think of a New Testament verse. What New Testament verse? John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. And so that, that, that is exactly what's happening in the Gospel of John in chapter 3. But what, what's happening here in Psalm 2-7 is your, your, your antenna go up. Your, your, ears, your ears are now sensitized. Your eyes are now piercing. This is talking about something huge. This is talking about something immense. This is a macro declaration of God's redemptive plan here. The answer to the rebellion is his son. And his son is going to be the agent of him dealing with the rebellion. And so nowhere in the Bible you will search in vain to ever find anything like that. Does it say that Jesus, the son of God, was created? It always speaks of Jesus, the Son of God, as begotten. And that is, that's an important distinction. It's, it's a verbal distinction, but it's an important one. So you have here the response of God to the rebellion is a king, and now the king speaks in the language of the Davidic covenant. And then in verse 6, eight, excuse me, verse 8, he resummarizes the promise an eternal kingdom. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, and the ends of the earth your possession. In Psalm 110, verse 1 and verse 2, Yahweh says to Adonai, the Father says to the Son, I will give you, I'm summarizing, I will give you planet earth as your inheritance. You will rule and reign over planet earth. That's what verse 8 is saying. His inheritance, the inheritance of the Son, is to rule over planet Earth. Now, put that in the context of the cosmic, the cosmic issues dealing with Satan's rebellion. Satan is the ruler of this age. Satan is the god of this age, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Jesus speaks of Satan as the prince of the power of the air. Satan, Jesus speaks of Satan, I'm plundering Satan's kingdom, because Jesus is winning back this planet. Jesus is winning back this rebellious planet. Jesus is dealing with the rebellion against God through the incarnation. And the Father promised to the Son, rule and reign over this rebellious planet. It's your heritage. It's your possession. And verse 9 is the language of Revelation chapter 19, verse 15, the second coming of Jesus Christ. When he comes back with the saints on a white horse, enters Jerusalem, heads north to Armageddon in the valley of Jezreel, and destroys his enemies. And the language of Revelation 19, 15 is this, you shall break them with a rod of iron. That is the language of the scepter of the kings, a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That's also very instructive because in the ancient world, when a province or a kingdom rebelled against a king, he would put down that rebellion and then he would smash a jar representing that rebellious kingdom. I've crushed them. And so what is being used here in verse 9 is the language in the ancient world. When a rebellious province was put down, the king would take a jar and smash it. I'm getting, I'm preaching now. I'm getting all animated, sorry. But he would, he would, he would smash it. That's what God's going to do. It, with the image of a simile, He's going to crush the rebellion. He did not do that in his first advent because he died on a cross for our sin and was resurrected. In the second advent, when he returns, in, in Revelation 19 is the account of that, when he returns, and this is the language you see in Revelation 19, 
verse 15 and following. He's going to crush the rebellion. That's what the Battle of Armageddon is all about. That, that's what the Lake of Fire is all about, where, where the, the Antichrist and the false prophet and others are thrown. I'm getting beyond the text here, but it's just, you, you see an exciting, at least I think it is, in verse 7, 8, 9, an exciting summary of what God is doing. <laughs> he's putting down the rebellion through his son. In phase one, he's going to pay the penalty. Phase two, he's going to crush the rebellion, and it'll be over. And so it's, it's an amazing summary of chapter after chapter after chapter, prophecy and, and material in the book of Revelation in three verses. Got it? Uh, one quick question. Yes, uh, Daniel. Verse 8, does that have anything to do when uh, Satan tries to tempt Jesus, offering him the ends of the earth and all the riches of this world? Does that yeah. have a something correlated to each other? It, it does. It, that's that's an excellent observation, really. It is, and, and an excellent question, because when you study the temptations of Jesus by Satan, he says to him, and this it, it must have been some miraculous uh, uh, demonstration of his power. He shows him all the kingdoms of the earth, and he says, "I'll give you this." Now, what's in back of that is, is a verse like this, or a verse like Psalm 110, 1 and 2, where the Father promises this to the Son. So what's Satan really saying? I'll give you, I'll fulfill that promise too. All you have to do is bow the knee to me. Mm. Just bow down and worship me. In other words, think of that. You can avoid the cross, you can avoid all the suffering, and you'll get what the Father promised you, but you got to bow down to me which, I mean, is, is ludicrous in a sense, because that means Satan's won. And of course, I mean, there's simply no way that's going to happen. But yes, I mean, that's a, I'm glad you asked that, Daniel. That's a very good insight, because it really does give the penetrating meaning to the tempta that particular temptation uh, by Satan of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's offering him what the Father promised him, but he doesn't have to go to the cross. Yeah, okay, thank you. Okay, that's a great question. Thank you for bringing that up. That was really good. Anything else? Jim, I wanted to ask you a question in regard to, um, like Saul was on his way on the Damascus Road and, and he was confronted by Christ. The question, and for people who are coming to Christ, it's a growth uh, mission, isn't it? I mean, it's a journey that continues and continues until we're with the Lord. Um, what what can you say to people, perhaps, as we draw close to maybe the end time, who knows, uh, for people who are just on that road uh, to redemption through Christ, um, so that they're not discouraged by the fact they haven't traveled much. How would how would you speak to those people who are sincere in heart and seeking after Christ? Do you mean those who have not yet put their faith in Christ? No, those those who are just you know baby Christians and maybe just coming oh. and so regretful of of maybe a portion of their life that they have uh, spiritually wasted, so to speak. Well, uh, um, I mean, I'm not sure how to answer that other than the whole, the whole offer of salvation that Jesus presents to us begins with, I'm going to use the language of the Apostle Paul, begins with justification when by faith you accept the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for you. You understand your sin. You understand your need for Christ. You understand how he met that need. Then that begins that process. Again, I'm using the language of the Apostle Paul, that process of sanctification, which is that process of growing, of the Lord developing, maturing you. And that's hard. It is. It's like a roller coaster in the sense that as we're dealing with the old habits and patterns of sin, yeah. we're dealing with yeah. the old nature, as you sometimes talk about, it, uh, that's hard. But the, 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 the Word of God um, keeps encouraging us, don't give up, persevere, hang in there. 
And the wonderful, those wonderful three words, the trilogy of the Apostle Paul is always faith, hope, and love. I mean, those three keep us going and, and encourage us and, and, and help to mature and grow us. Um, and it's, it's hard. I mean, I'm working with a guy right now. He has a horrible past. I mean, I just, uh, he's absolutely yeah. enslaved to sexual addiction. He's abused women. I mean, it just, it's really difficult case. And the biggest problem for him, and it's just, it's every yes. time I talk to him, he doesn't understand the grace of God. <laughs> he just does not understand it. I mean, he just can't believe yes. that God would forgive him and cleanse him of all the things that he's done. And of course, that's the whole point that he has. This yes. young man has trusted Christ, but he is, he is having an immense struggle mm. understanding the difference between his position in Christ Amen. and his practice of his faith. I mean, it's just an, it's an up and down roller coaster. Yes. Mm -hmm. One day he'll know me, he's on the top of the mountain, he's excited, he just read this in scripture. Two days later, he's in the, in the pits because he's been tempted and, and has given yes. in, he's fallen, he thinks he's lost everything. Yes. He hasn't. He hasn't lost everything. Amen. It's what Romans 7 is all about. I do what I can't, don't want to do. I seem to be able to do only what I don't want to do. And that's the struggle. Thank you. All right. Let's look at verse. I, anything else? Yeah. I, um, I have a question. I'd like to delve a little bit deeper into the today I have begotten you. Yes. Um, you mentioned this was a coronation deal. And it seems like there's a layered meaning here where there, it's talking about both David and Jesus. And I was wondering why it is temporal. Is, that, is the temporal part um, only applicable to the David side of this, or is it somehow integrated? The reason I'm asking the question is I have Jehovah's Witness friends that, um, of course, d believe that Jesus is you know, kind of the, the top human, but not really yeah. um, part of the Godhead. Yeah, he's and, created. Yeah, he's, a cre he's created and right. used some, you know, things that look convincing, but build bridges of interpretation um, because that's how they kind of lead you down this path. So I'm trying to understand this. This isn't one of the main verses that I'm always um, uh, delving into, but this looks like it shares some potential. So I was wondering if you could delve into this begotten concept and whether it applied to uh, David and or um, Christ or just David in this context. Both. It applies to both. Both. Both to David. And all of this, this entire psalm applies to both David mm -hmm. historically 3,000 years ago, but also as a prophetic statement applying to the coming Messiah. So and so that... that that's why, uh, let me elaborate a little more and then probe further if I'm not hitting where you, where you want to hit. Mm -hmm. the, the phrase, today I've begotten you, again, that's a coronation formula of the kings of Judah. And it, it's referring not to his origin, not to his beginning in mm -hmm. terms of time. You know, today I created you, your, your father's mm -hmm. sperm united with your mother's mm -hmm. egg. Now, that's not what this, that's not what this means. It's referring to today, I have begotten you. You are now the king. And because you are the king of Israel in fulfilling the Davidic promise, which is what God had promised to David, therefore I'm going to speak. This is your beginning as the king. This is your anointing as the king. And that's why the New Testament is very, very careful. And it's especially, of course, in the Gospel of John, the New Testament does not use the language of Jesus being created. Mm -hmm. I don't care what a JW says to you. They mm -hmm. will not be able to find a verse in the New Testament that mm -hmm. declares Jesus is a created being. Mm -hmm. The language that the New Testament uses is he's begotten. Now, that, that sounds a little funny because that's a strange word to us. But well, I, I see this as um, when I see the word begotten, I get back to person A begat, 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 that talks about a genealogy that has a temporal time and a beginning and a, a, a creation. So I'm not as well versed as in these kind of, are these the same word, but in like data form in different contexts, or are these the different words? 
that I'm just well, confusing it, it, in the translation. In, in John, in John three sixteen, the uh, uh, um, for God so loved the world world that He gave His only begotten Son. That Greek term is monogenes. Now I know that that doesn't mean anything to you, but monogenes nice. that means the one, only, unique Son. That's what that means. Mono is one, the one only unique son. Let, let, me, let me put it another way. As this term is used in the New Testament of Jesus, it is referring not to his origin, O-R-I-G-I-N, not to his origin, but to his position. Position. It refers to his rank. It refers to his authority. That's what it's referring to. And, you know, to me, uh, and I think, I, I can't remember because I teach a lot of classes, but I think I may have mentioned this to you. When I talk to a Jehovah's Witness, I don't get into this stuff about begotten because they have a standard talking point they've been taught. And they always say, as the Greek says, so I then say, okay, I want you to do me a favor. And I ask them to read John 8, 58, where Jesus is in a debate with the Pharisees and all that. And they're trying to relate him to Abraham. And he says, before Abraham was, I am. I am, right. And then I say, okay, now I'd like you to turn to Exodus 3.14. When God is, is challenging Moses and indeed ordering Moses, commissioning Moses to be the deliverer of Israel, and Moses says, what name should I say? Who do I say sent me? Remember what he says? I, I am, that, am I that I am. And I just say to them, I said, okay, I want you to try to demonstrate to me why Jesus isn't claiming to be the Jehovah, mm -hmm. the eternal, self-sufficient, great I am of the universe. Why would the Pharisees go to stone him if and that wasn't exactly the right. case? And the very next verse in John 8, 59 is they pick up stones to kill him. They understood mm -hmm. what he was claiming. Mm -hmm. So I don't to get into the way they try to twist monogenes, begotten. Mm -hmm. I, I get to the, I try to get them to the very heart of what's Jesus claiming, and how does that relate to the Old Testament revelation? Well, to me, it's crystal clear. He's claiming to be the eternal, self-sufficient God of the universe. Now I get all excited about that, but that is no, yeah, but it matters. Really, it's really, really matters, and it just demonstrates how important language is. Mm -hmm. It really is. Okay, I have, I have a question. Can I have a question here, very quick? Yeah, another one. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, when you talk about uh, God's promise to Jesus to uh, for the whole planet Earth to be all his, uh, what is the big difference between uh, the promise that was coming from Satan uh, in the temptation and the, the promise of God and also the promise that many other religions, especially one which is Islam, talking about inheriting the whole planet Earth through their, their, their struggle and through their fights and, and so forth. Uh, can you talk to the, the difference between the promise of the whole planet, uh, between those three things? Because mainly as Christians, we talk about our inheritance is in heaven, not the planet Earth. So this is one distinguish between all of us. But when you talk about the planet Earth promise, what is the difference between other religions, Satan, and uh, God's promise to Jesus? <laughs> Very simple question you've asked there. Uh, okay. <laughs> Um, first of all, uh, I'm not sure I completely understand every aspect of your question, but uh, God, God, let's deal with, with us as Christians first. God has promised something to you and to me, and that promise is that we are a joint heir with Jesus Christ, that we will rule and reign with him in the kingdom period, which I think is a thousand years according to Revelation 20. But anyway, we will rule and reign with him as joint over planet Earth. And I mean, that is our inheritance. That is part of the uh, promise, if you will, that God has made to you and to me, that we will rule and reign with Jesus Christ as he establishes once and for all his rule over this rebellious planet. And therefore, that as I said in response to um, I think it was Daniel's question, um, that's the power of Satan's temptation to him in the wilderness. I mean, he, Jesus is at his physical end. He's fasted for 40 days. My doctor friend tells me that if you go without food for 48 days, your body's emaciated. 
it is at its weakest point, and it's at that point that Satan says to him, hey, you know, you don't have to go to the cross. The Father's promised you rule over this planet, this rebellious planet, Psalm 2-7, Psalm 110, 1 and 2, and so on, but you don't have to do that. Just bow the knee to me, and I'll give it all to you. And so that, that ability or that uh, uh, temptation to, I can get what the Father promised me, but I don't have to suffer. Now, it, the text is very clear in Matthew 4. Jesus doesn't even consider this. He immediately dismisses Satan and says, get away from me, depart from me. And so, you know, you, you get the sense Jesus doesn't even think about it. So the, that's, but I'm not sure I understood the other part of your question when you're bringing in other world religions. I didn't quite get that. There is other religions like yes. Islam. Yes. Uh, and it talks about the promise of ruling over the whole planet. And it is the mission of every Muslim to continue on that promise by working uh, towards that by jihad and other means to conquer every every country and every corner until they raise the flag. So how is that a distortion from the biblical inheritance of the planet Earth, whether from a satanic perspective and well, a godly perspective? Well, the, the, the energy of Islam, uh, which le has led to the jihad that, that we have seen in, in, our, uh, in our lifetime, 9-11, uh, for example, is, is given to human beings. You claim inch by inch, square mile by square mile, nation by nation, this planet for Allah. That is not Christianity. Jesus is the one who does that. You and I don't do that. The church is not a group of warriors where we're taking machine guns and tanks and, and reclaiming planet Earth for the Lord. The Lord Jesus is doing that. And he does it in two phases. Phase one is the, the incarnation and the, the cross. Phase two is his return in the second coming, Revelation 19, and vanquishes his, vanquishing his enemies, throwing them into the lake of fire, and then destroying evil. There's a big difference to that because Islam and to some extent um, uh, a couple of other faiths leave it all on the shoulders of human beings in the name of God to reclaim this. That is not Christianity. Jesus does it. And all you and I do as his ambassadors is we represent his values and virtues uh, to this world and how we live, and we pronounce the gospel through how we speak. That is our role as the ambassadors of Christ. Our I, I, weapons and armor are different too. Yeah, exactly. You know, it, yeah, the whole armor of God, of God. Yeah. is a totally different, it's a military metaphor, but it's okay. totally different. It's a spiritual energy and power that comes from the Lord. So am I getting at your question then? I, yeah, I think this is, so basically the promise is to Jesus and yes. we're just going to be continue putting our faith in him. Yes. While, while in other religions, it is on the shoulders of the believers That's right. and the followers to continue fulfilling a promise. That's through right. other means other than depending on God, but depending on our own efforts to be the soldiers of God. While, while, while as in Christianity, we are just believers, and God is the one who's going to conquer for us. That's it. You got it. Wonderful. Let's move on. Verses 10 through 12. How do you respond to truth like this? What has been summarized in these first nine verses, I think arguably you would all agree, is some of the most profound truth of the Bible. I mean, in, in such a short, summary fashion, we've, we've gone through the sweep of God's redemptive program, the rebellion, and how Jesus is going to fulfill all of this through the grid of the Davidic covenant. So verses 10 through 11, 10, 11, and 12 are the response, a call to be wise. Now, therefore, if I can embellish that a bit, based on everything I've just said, based on everything I've just reviewed, based on the details I've just laid out of what in the world God is doing, O kings, be wise. That the kings of verse 2. Be warned, rulers of the earth, verse 2. In light of everything I've just reviewed about the sovereignty of God, and how he's going to deal with this rebellion, the only acceptable response 
is be wise. What is the evidence that you have understood this? Verse 11, it's your response to Yahweh. It's your response to the Son. Serve, verse 11, serve the Lord with fear. Both serve in Hebrew and fear in Hebrew are worship words. So it's the idea of my, oh my, if I'm responding wisely and I'm taking this warning seriously, the only thing I can do is bow down and worship and serve Yahweh. Rejoice with trembling, with the appropriate shouts of joy because of what God has revealed. You know, it's really interesting if you go to Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, Paul writes, work out your salvation, your soterion, your sanctification with fear and trembling. Greek words for these Hebrew words in verse 11. So this is a worshipful response to the truth of what God is doing and what God will do. You only have one response. That makes sense. That's wise. And that is a worshipful fear and trembling response to who Yahweh is. Again, Lord in capitals is Yahweh in the Hebrew. And then verse 12, to the Son, kiss the Son. Uh, that sounds strange to you and me today in the 21st century, but to, to in the ancient world, and really to some extent even in some of the monarchies of, of the modern period, I think of modern Europe, to kiss the king, to do homage to the king was a very common, ordinary thing to do. So you could paraphrase the beginning of verse 12, do homage to the son. Do, do, do that which indicates your devotion, your allegiance, your loyalty to the Davidic king. Because if he is going to do all that the father has commissioned him to do, I'm thinking there again in verse 9, your only acceptable wise response to that is worshipfully adore, worshipfully do homage, worshipfully commit your loyalty and devotion to him, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Again, there's another proleptic future in Hebrew. For his wrath will soon be quickly kindled. And in my Bible, I wrote, see Revelation 19, 15 and following. Because if you do not bow to Jesus now, you will be the object of his wrath in the future judgment. I, I don't mean to put that so crassly, but that's exactly the point. Submit to the Son now, or you will face his judgment. And so the author, and this is David, of course, the author of Psalm 2 is laying it on the line. This revelation is profound. This revelation, by revelation, I mean this, God is revealing his plan here. He's, he's summarizing his plan. This revelation is so profound. It insists upon a response. You can't brush this off. You can't pretend this isn't important. And then I just, I love, I love how the psalm ends. Look at this wonderful, positive statement. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now, you and I can read that. We say, oh, man, it's wonderful. What does that mean? Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Well, for you and me, in 2020, this side of the cross, how do you take refuge in the Son? You put your faith in him. You appropriate his death, burial, and resurrection to your life by faith. You understand your sin problem. You understand what he's done for you. I mean, it's, it's, it's a wonderful Old Testament way of saying, put your hope and trust of salvation, for salvation in him. This is no other way. And blessed are those who do that. You see, the language that's in the Old Testament, take refuge, is like Psalm 46 and others. 
You take your refuge in God. He is your place of security. He's your place of safety. And for you and me, this side of the cross, to have God as our refuge, as our safety, a place of safety and security, is to trust in Jesus Christ. And so it's, it's just a wonderful way, quite a magnificent, marvelous way to end this, this great psalm. It's short. It's only 12 verses of summarizing all that God is doing. First Advent, Second Advent, summarized in short, pithy phrases and statements. What's your response? Be wise, worship, serve, and take refuge in him. And, you know, even today with all that's going on with the COVID-19 virus and all that stuff, we still can say, blessed are those who take refuge. God's got our back. God's going to take care of us. Because looking from the eternal perspective, God is reminding us in the United States and indeed throughout the world, you think everything about your material world is your, your source of security and safety and refuge? We've been reminded it isn't. It can be gone quickly. And, uh, you know, a lot of people, in terms just of their stock portfolio, a lot has happened the last couple of weeks, let alone the disruptive nature of life right now. It, I mean, this is a very frightening time for a lot of people. And it's just reminding us again, in what are you placing your security? Peggy and I have been talking about that quite a bit the last couple of days, simply because of Everything that's happening, we're just being reminded it is only God. It is only God truly that offers us the refuge and security and protection. Nothing else does. And we're just being reminded of that. This is, I, I'm looking, I've been praying this, we both have been praying this, that God would use this COVID-19 to bring a great renewal, spiritual renewal to this country. And uh, it's not going to come from politics. It's not going to come from the next election. It's going to come through the grace of Jesus. And I'm praying that this, this is going to be a wake-up call. And hopefully uh, God will answer that prayer. Well, we have two psalms down. I want to lay the groundwork for the third psalm here in a minute. Any final questions? Yeah, Jim, I had one regarding uh, for his wrath may soon be kindled. Is that a matter more of of certainty than of, of time, because I think a lot of people say, I hear it, I hear it, I hear it, but I see nothing. I don't see his judgment. I don't see, you know, those who choose not to believe. And, and can you comment on that in general? He also says it's slow in another place, a slow to anger, yeah. right? yeah. but here it's quickly kindled. That's an interesting juxtaposition. Yeah. Well, and again, uh, that really is a proleptic future. I know that that's grammar stuff that's hard, but you could literally translate that for his wrath will soon quickly be kindled. And when you put it, it's, it's a certainty that it's going to happen. So you put it in the present tense. His wrath is quickly kindled. It hasn't happened yet, but it's so certain and so absolute that it's going to happen in the future that you put it in the present tense. It is going to happen. And it's so, taken thousands of years to get there. Yeah, right? exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I mean, but as you said um, in, in your comment, he's slow to anger, slow to wrath. He's long suffering. He's patient. But we know from events in history, as well as in biblical history, I'm thinking like the kings of Israel and so on, there or Pharaoh and others, there's a time when God says, now I'm going to act. And that this is talking about this meaning, this is the final judgment. And Fred, I mean, you're right. I mean, there are many, many people who, oh, I hear you talk about God's judgment. I hear you talking about God's going to settle account. It's been an awful long time. And I don't, I don't think that's going to ever really happen. I can pretty much live the way I want to live, and I'll never, ever have to yeah. give an account to God. That's where most, well, I maybe shouldn't say most, but that's where many people are. And, you know, Fred, the only, th the only thing there, it seems to me, is that, that, kind, that kind of challenge to a person's heart has to come from the Holy Spirit, not, not from you and me. Right. 
I mean, I, I don't want to bang people over the head with my Bible and say, you're facing fire and brimstone if you don't trust Jesus today. Not too many people have come to faith in Christ using that Amen. line. That's right. It's That's the right. Holy Spirit who brings, brings that conviction and that desire to really embrace Jesus. Thank you. How are we doing here on time? Well, it's, uh, oh. All right. Let me, uh, it's 1241. Let me set up uh, our, our time for chapter, uh, Psalm 3. Um, this is the first, and there are many of these in the Psalms, this is the first what we call lament Psalms, L-A-M-E-N-T, lament Psalms. And I would encourage you strongly, if you can do this, to read the psalm. Most of you are at home now. You can't go out. You're in captivity. So read the psalm a couple of times over the next week. And then look at the little outline I provided you, simply just to kind of see there's a little bit of a structure to it. I draw your attention. I think all of your translations will have this. I draw your attention to the superscription. It's that statement right above the psalm before it starts in verse 1. I think all of yours will, will have this. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Now, what is that referring to? It's referring to an historic event in David's life in 2 Samuel 15 and 16 when his son Absalom is rebelling against him. His son Absalom is leading, literally, a rebellion against David as king. And David will flee Jerusalem. He will run because he literally is being threatened by his son. And so David is, in, in the verse three, first three verses, David is lamenting what's happened to him. And he, he is crying out to God on the basis of this. And he even summarizes the taunt and, and the kind of abuse that his enemies, Absalom and others, are hurling at him. There's no salvation for him in God, verse 2. And then verse 3, David's triumphant response to that taunt. That's, that's what I want you to look at as you get ready for the class next week. This is another, it's short, it's only eight verses, but it's a fantastic psalm. And I hope... Um, I hope it'll be a blessing as we study it next week. So my encouragement is that you read this Psalm seven, se several times. It's only eight verses. You get a little sense of David's heart. He's lamenting. He's been abandoned. There's a revolt against him going on. Where does he find his refuge? Where does he find his security? What does he ask God to do? And it's a fantastic Psalm that we can really apply to our lives. And that's part of, of course, what I want to do. Well, great, great. It's been wonderful to be with you virtually, and I hope it's been a blessing for all of you. I'm going to pray, and then I guess we'll sign off, right, Glenn? Heavenly Father, we're, we're grateful for our, our time around Psalm 2. Oh, it's such a majestic psalm. It's, it is really one of my favorites because it has so much to say in such a short, short amount of material in, in, in 12 verses summarizing rebellion, summarizing a response, and giving focus to Jesus and what he's going to accomplish. What he did accomplish in the first advent, what he will accomplish in the second. Thank you that we have taken refuge in you at the end of the psalm. We've put our faith in Christ. Our source of security and safety and refuge is you. Not other things, not material things, not even necessarily other people. It's you. And Lord, we, we take great comfort in that. You have our back. You will never leave us. You will never forsake us. You will never abandon us. You are a good Heavenly Father. You're a loving Heavenly Father. You care for us. You know our names. We are part of your family. And you love us beyond any comprehension we can ever envision. And that evidence, it is evidenced by your sending of Jesus to die for us be resurrected in power, to ascend, to send your Holy Spirit to dwell within us. All of these things, we give you great thanks. We worship you. We desire to serve you, to adore you with fear and trembling. We commit ourselves to you in a fresh, fresh new way. Be with these men in this time of testing, this time of 
challenge with the COVID-19 virus. We pray for the medical people and doctors and nurses and others on the front line dealing with so much hurt and pain. We ask for you to give them extra strength, added, added enablement. Lord, I just pray if it's pleasing to you that this would soon come to an end. We want to commit this to you because we trust you. Thank you for these men. May they represent you well as strong men of faith, strong men of God. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. See you next week, man. <laughs>